0: It's Wednesday, April 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Nipsey Hussle's alleged killer, Eric Holder, has been arrested by police. Nipsey was shot in the head and torso in what police call a personal dispute with his killer. What makes his death more tragic is that he had become more than a Grammy-nominated rapper. He went from being a gang member to a rap star to an entrepreneur and community organizer an activist who wanted to turn his old neighborhood around. Garrett Kennedy with the LA Times joins us to talk about Nipsey Hussle's legacy. Next, from moms to doctors to everyday employees, burnout is everywhere. While many people get stressed with day-to-day activities, burnout could be a much more serious thing. Think of it as chronic stress gone awry, emotional exhaustion, cynicism, and feeling ineffective. Writer Jenny Ruff joins us to talk about burnout and what to do about it. Finally, it's a meltdown that happens every night across the country in many households. You tell the kids it's time to turn the video games off and they start yelling and throwing tantrums. But why doesn't it happen when it's time to stop playing with Legos? There is something happening in their brains when the video games stop. Julie Jargon, family and tech correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how to handle kids and their games. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: Mr. Holder walked up on multiple occasions and engaged in a conversation with Nipsey and the others that were there. He left and then came back and
0: subsequently came back armed with a handgun and purposely and repeatedly fired, striking and killing Nipsey Hussle. Joining us now is Garrett Kennedy, reporter for the LA Times. We're going to be talking about rapper Nipsey Hussle, Grammy-nominated rapper and his death this past Sunday We're finding out now that police have detained a man they believe to be Eric Holder, who is the suspect in shooting him. Garrick, let's start from the beginning real quick. Let's just tell us about what happened, how the shooting took place.
1: Nipsey was at his store, the Marathon. It's not unusual to see him at a store. He was there often. He was always there, you know, greeting fans, greeting visitors. So it wasn't out of the ordinary for him to be at a shop on a busy weekend. What we have learned is that there was an altercation, a verbal altercation between Nipsey and the alleged suspect, Eric, who then left the scene and then came back and shot him multiple times. The thing about it, and I've, I've said this a bunch of times, what made the killing so particularly cruel, which I'm sure we'll talk about later is the fact that this happened at his business. This happened at a spot where the community really knew what he was about. It was such proof of what he was trying to do, which is investing in the neighborhood, making it better, bringing more businesses in there, and also creating more jobs for, for those of us in the community.
0: The coroner's office did say that he did die from gunshots to the head and torso, and you just started getting into it. I mean, the bigger picture really is who this man was and what he meant to the neighborhood, to his community there. He was a guy who joined the Roland 60s, a Crips gang. He went on to make it big, but he didn't abandon his home. He came back. He wanted to invest in the neighborhood. He started businesses there. He offered jobs to people. He donated to good causes only to be shot outside of his business there where he was trying to turn the neighborhood around is also part of that tragedy tell us a little bit more about who nipsey Hussle was as a person you know his life before and really turning it around into becoming this community leader in
1: today's LA Times, our headline with our coverage was, you know, A Legend in the City and so, you know, a lot of folks took kind of offense to that because for so many people in LA and and across the nation they had never heard of this guy and I think that's what kind of made what he was doing so very special. This was somebody who for 10 years he's selling his mixtapes out of his trunk in the parking lot. Really typical kind of hip-hop, rags to riches, tales, But where he was making his money, there wasn't somebody who was, I'm going to get my money and I'm going to leave the neighborhood. I'm going to leave the hood. This is kind of what we've all been taught in hip-hop culture. It's so aspirational and so... So many of us who have been in these type of neighborhoods, as soon as we feel like we can make it out, we leave. We've all done it. I've done it. Um, Right. It's 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 that kind
0: of natural thing. You want to move on to bigger and better things. Yeah, it's a a natural thing of wanting to do. He even said in in a couple of uh, interviews, and in our culture, there's this narrative that says follow the athletes, follow the entertainers, and that's cool, but there should be something that says follow Elon Musk, follow Mark Zuckerberg, follow these grander visions of things. And he said that that was part of what he wanted to do. He was an influential artist and it made sense for him to be one of the people that waves those flags to promote business, to promote people getting better, staying there with the community. That's where he was trying to to make the biggest impact.
1: He was forging a different type of blueprint for what rap success looks like. Right. What he did really early on was he said, "Okay, I've experienced what it's like to be at a label. I've experienced what those things can mean to my music, so let me just go ahead and continue to keep 100%, not only just my power, but also kind of having autonomy over my own voice. So him deciding to sell his music himself, these are very basic one-on-one music business things to do, right? But then he was also at the same time saying, okay, I want to be an example for this community. So as I'm making this money, I'm going to put it back into the community. I'm going to open up a shop that starts as just a place for me to sell my merch, but it's also a place where I'm employing people. I'm then going to turn around and buy the entire strip mall of where this business is, and then I'm going to create low-income housing because, yes, everybody in South L.A., particularly in Crenshaw, they're seeing the level of gentrification that's happening. They're feeling excluded. They're feeling pushed aside. Nobody's wondering what the vision for this neighborhood is. This is historically black neighborhoods. Lots of change is happening, but those changes are coming from people who don't look like us, trying to be an example of this can still be us as well.
0: What happens to the community now? How are they going to be honoring him, and how do they move forward?
1: One way that I hope that the community moves forward is taking his vision and sort of implementing it themselves. You know, yes, everyone here not millionaires, obviously, but I think what he was trying to show us is that you didn't have to be, right? What he was trying to show us was take pride in where you're from and you can do good, whether it's big or small. And that's that's why we really wanted to write about the big and small. Buying shoes for neighborhood kids, yeah. repaving a playground, repaving basketball courts, trying to help the homeless in any way possible. Not here's a couple of dollars, but hey, look, I have this, I have 15 or so businesses. Come work at one of my shops. I'm going to get you off the street. So he was doing as much as he could always. And I think that's what makes this really heartbreaking in such a way. Really close to where I I live, there's this billboard of him, and it's from Grammy-nominated album Victory Lap, which is the last time I saw Nipsey was Grammy Weekend, you know, congratulating him on such a huge accomplishment, because it is really hard to become an artist the way that he was, which is fairly underground, you know, fairly a niche market of just like West Coast rap heads, we all knew who he was, but a rap fan back where I'm from in Cincinnati had no idea who he was, probably until Victory Lap. So to have him have that moment, and then a couple months later, here we are having to write about him in this way, it just really, really, really pains me in such a way, especially living in the community where I was seeing that he was doing good. And you don't have to go far to hear some story about what Nipsey has done for somebody.
0: We'll learn more about what led to his death. But in the meantime, I hope that his legacy lives on in that way. And the city continues to honor him on that front. Garrett Kennedy, reporter for the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: We live in this day and age where it's almost a prideful thing to say, oh, you know, I operate on four hours of sleep. (laughs) You're right. It's almost shameful to admit that we're sleeping or that we need sleep. Joining
0: us now is Jenny Ruff, freelance writer for the health and science section of the Washington Post. We're going to be talking about something that is getting all too common now, and you're probably hearing a lot about it, is burnout. There's burnout everywhere, basically. So tell us a little bit about how much people are experiencing
2: this, Jenny. Teachers are experiencing burnout. Their students are experiencing it. Child athletes are experiencing it. Their parents are experiencing it. Doctors, lawyers, journalists. It just seems like everyone is burned out these days.
0: Let's define what burnout is. In your article, you call it chronic stress gone awry. And let's talk about the main symptoms of burnout.
2: So the three big symptoms are an emotional exhaustion that you can't shake off over time. The second one is cynicism, feeling like you're checked out of work or checked out of life. And the third one is a sense of ineffectiveness, that what you're doing just doesn't matter. So those are sort of the big three. But there are a few symptoms that might be a little bit more surprising. One I came across in my research a lot is people who experience burnout are often having frequent head colds. So if you're sick a lot, that could be a sign. Another symptom to look out for. One of the experts I interviewed, Paula davis Lack, said that you might be burned out if you feel like every curveball is a major crisis. So the example she gave is that one day her mom asked her to pick up groceries one weekend, and Paula said it was a level one ask, but she had a level 15 response. So just feeling too overwhelmed.
0: How do we differentiate between true burnout or a stressful day?
2: Burnout is a term that gets tossed around pretty casually. But according to a number of the experts I talked with, if you think of burnout on a continuum and you're in the early stages of it, you can take a vacation or you can take a long weekend and you're going to feel good when you come back to work on Monday morning. You're just needed to get over maybe a tired day or a tired week. If you take a vacation and you are at the end stages of burnout, it's not going to be fixed. You know, in that case, you're probably going to need to look at maybe more time off or more ways to rest or take a break.
0: How do we identify what is causing it and what to do about it?
2: There's sort of a two-part answer to that. So one thing is to recognize that it's important to differentiate between stress and stressors. So this is one of the things that Emily and Amalia Nagoski say in their new book on burnout, They say that stressors are things on our to-do lists, emails we need to respond to, job duties we need to do, things we're trying to accomplish, versus stress, which is the actual neurological and physiological shift that happens in the body when you encounter these stressors. So they say that what people tend to do is focused on the stress and they're checking things off their to-do list like crazy and they're not understanding why their burnout isn't getting better. They say (laughs) what's important to do is to let the chemical process that's going on in your body complete a cycle. And they give a whole list of ways that you can do that, which we can talk about. But as far as do I need to change a career or quit or can I somehow recover from this burnout and not lose my job, one thing I noticed when I interviewed people who had been through burnout, and I experienced this myself too, uh, because I went through burnout in 2004, is that a lot of the healing process really involves finding meaning and purpose in life. You know, if you're in a job that doesn't interest you or that just isn't a good fit for your skills and interests and gifts, you might want to think about changing it.
0: Just briefly, talk about that, letting the cycle of the burnout play out. How do we do that?
2: They need to work out the tension in their body through physical movement. So getting outside and taking a walk, going for a swim, maybe horseback riding, Whatever it is that appeals to you that allows your body to move, especially in our society that's so sedentary. We just don't get enough of that. And then sleep was another big one. We live in this day and age where it's almost a prideful thing to say, oh, you know, I operate on four hours of sleep. (laughs) It's almost shameful to admit that we're sleeping or that we need sleep. And then another big one that they talked about was having genuine connections. So not Facebook and social media, but getting together one-on-one with a friend. And I believe that what's happening here is you can sort of talk through the emotions that you're experiencing. So that also helps your body complete its stress response cycle.
0: Burnout plays a role on the gender level also. Who feels it more and and how does it manifest in, in each gender?
2: Researchers from the University of Montreal published some work that showed that women tend to report higher levels of burnout than men. And that was due in part to the fact that women tend to have more work and family conflicts and also tend to be in jobs that they might not have as much autonomy or decision-making ability and that kind of stuff. But other studies have showed that the rates of burnout among men and women are the same, but the genders might experience it differently. You know, women tend to experience more of an emotional exhaustion while men tend to experience the symptoms as cynicism.
0: Jenny Ruff, freelance writer for the health and science section of the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much. Everyone take care of your soul, body, and mind.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Thank you. (laughs)
3: Video game designers have gotten remarkably adept at keeping gamers entranced with a steady source of intermittent rewards. More rewards means a constant stream of dopamine released into the brain throughout gameplay. So when a parent pulls the plug on a child's video game, there's an even more powerful effect.
0: Joining us now is Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist for The Wall Street Journal. We saw your article. I loved it right away. I, I, I recognize myself in a lot of what we're going to talk about. But this is the debut of the Wall Street Journal's family and tech column. You're going to be doing a look into the impact of technology on family life which I think is so important. It's inescapable right now how much technology impacts our lives. As I was saying, this article is about the nightly meltdown that a lot of parents go through with their children when it's time to wrap things up for the night, go to bed. But first, you got to turn off your video games and you got to wrap your stuff up to go to bed. So tell us a little bit about that, because I know this happens everywhere.
3: It does, it happens everywhere, it happens in my house. <laughs> um, and I wanted to understand why. And why it's different than when kids are enjoying other activities, like playing with Legos, reading books, other things that they enjoy doing. You don't get the kind of reaction when you have kids pivot from those tasks onto other things.
0: It's something specific about the video games, and we've seen it all over the place now. I mean, parents are putting it even on their social medias when they turn their kids' games off, and then they just start yelling or crying, and they're almost comical to look at.
3: Yeah. I mean, you laugh and you cry at the same time. (laughs) And really, the reason, there are a few reasons, but namely, the reason it's different with video games is because the video game makers have gotten really good at including a bunch of rewards in the games as they're being played to keep kids' interest. So that's why it's a little bit different than other analog tasks. One study even found that as the gamers became even better at the game and it became more challenging, their brain released more dopamine as they were playing. And so that just kept the game playing going, and then that's harder to turn off. It's hard for adults to do that, but it's particularly hard for children. And the reason is that their prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed like adults are. And that's the part of the brain that is involved in decision-making and impulse control. So we as adults can kind of override that and say, okay, I'm really enjoying playing this video game or doing whatever, but now it's time to go make dinner or clean the house. (laughs) Kids don't have that ability. And
0: I can attest to all of this. I was a gamer. I'm still a gamer now, but I was uh, very much into it when I was a kid. And you're right, as far as these rewards or even leveling up, you're getting further in the game. You're better at it. It's just a more enjoyable experience. And with the games, a lot of times nowadays, you're playing online. They could be first person shooters or battle royale formats like Fortnite, and they just don't end. I mean, it's always, let's get to the Next match, So there's an endless supply of wanting to do better and getting the dopamine rush from the whole thing. I used to be one of these kids that would plead with my mom when she'd come in and say, hey, it's time to go to bed. I was like, oh, one more level or let me get to that checkpoint. All of this doesn't necessarily point to that kids are actually addicts of video games. It's just they're not really adept to switching gears so easily just yet.
3: That's right. And there is a lot of fear you know, out there about, is my kid addicted? Do, is there a serious, deep problem here that is going to need treatment? And I think for the vast majority of children, that is not the case. It's just their biology. And as their brains are developing, it's, it's just harder to wrest them from something they enjoy doing so much, especially when it means the task that you want them to move toward is a lot less enjoyable. Maybe they like eating dinner, but they might not really want to do their homework. <laughs> right, exactly want to want to do their chores no one wants to do those kind of things but it's it's hard when you've got the pull of a video game that is so well designed yeah. to capture your interest and keep your interest for so long that's really what the key thing is here as you've experienced yourself you know you want to keep getting to that next level yeah, totally. and in the case of these multiplayer games you don't want to let down your friends it's a social activity it you've is, got a group yeah. of people they're relying on you to be part of their group that's babbling it out and you don't want to just drop off and leave them hanging so there's that component to it as well
0: there's a horrible situation to be in at the end of the night too. You're exhausted, you know, you're burnt out on the day. And what do parents do? How do you set the boundaries so that kids can transition from this a lot easier?
3: A lot of experts I've talked to said that the key thing is to have rules. They may not be the same rules in every household and there's no really right or wrong. It's kind of whatever you feel is acceptable to you and what works for you. But some experts said if you enlist your children in helping to develop those rules, they will feel more invested in it. So in my house, for example, my oldest son, who's really the only one that plays video games, he has to do his homework first. Right. You know, when he gets home, he can't do anything else until that's done. And and I always give like a 20 minute heads up if we're about to go somewhere or transition to something else and say, you know, in 20 minutes, I need you to shut yeah. this down.
0: I think that's an important one because I'd always have that feeling of like, ah, let me just get to the checkpoint or let me get to this next, you know, finish this level. I put so much hard work into it. And if you're giving them at least that warning, it sets them up for that.
3: And sometimes if I don't provide a set amount of time, I'll just say, where are you in the game? What are you doing? How much time do you need before you're at a good stopping point? And they'll yeah. say, you know, I think it'll be 10 more minutes before I complete this mission or, <laughs> or whatever. And I'll say, okay, you can have 10 minutes. So, you know, that's not always possible. Sometimes you just have to go somewhere. Yeah. I think the key is to just not go and literally pull the plug like we had <laughs> parents doing in our videos. It's yeah. probably not the best tactic, but it just shows how kids can react so emotionally when you do have to do that.
0: It's happening all over the country. So parents don't be worried that it's just happening to you or your kid is particularly crazy with the video games. It's happening everywhere. It's just about how you handle it and setting those boundaries. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist for the wall street journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at daily dive pod on Twitter Twitter and Daily Dive Podcasts on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm
2: Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.